This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we're going to be joined uh, by Jonathan Charlie in a matter of moments. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, the latest of the border, right after that. We'll see what happens in Washington, where we understand, as of when I woke up this morning, they are set to agree on an omnibus bill, which almost nobody knows what's in it, to the cost of $1.7 trillion. They don't even do a budget. They just, just put money out there. Everyone just jumps in. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do not inject politics into criminal charging decisions. And that's exactly what they've done. It's utterly worthless. It is not worth the paper it's written on. January 6th committee wraps up. What have we learned? What happens now? And what will every other network and newspaper obsess about once Donald to now that January 6th investigation is through? Number two. The fact is that the removal of Title 42 does not mean the border is open. Uh, Anyone who suggests otherwise is simply doing the work of these smugglers who, again, are spreading misinformation and which are which is very dangerous. Isn't that insane? Doing the work of smugglers by allowing that border to be wide open and pointing it out that it's wide open. The problem is pointing it out. Welcome delay. Title 42 stays in place for now, but the invasion down south continues. It's the worst in our nation's history, and the borders are our VP. Nowhere to be found, and our boss even worse. Number one. I suppose that's why the Hunter Biden laptop story is significant, because there was obviously an assumption that that would have a negative impact on the election. So they repressed it. And now, 18 months later, mainstream media in our country, like the BBC, it's just, oh, yeah, that was true. That got repressed. Yeah, like the Washington Post and New York Times and CBS and ABC. They agreed that it was all real and it was depressed because it would have depressed the numbers of Joe Biden. Twitter drop number seven shows our taxpayer dollars and 80 agents paid millions to social media through this social media platform to make sure the Hunter Burisma mess was strangled at birth under the guise of Russia disinformation. Michael Schellenberger will be joining us at one point in the show, was tasked by Musk to disseminate, and he did. With me right now, who's already disseminated, and I think if I've been watching your appearances correctly with the sound up, pretty outraged by it is Jonathan Turley. Jonathan, a lot to discuss. Let's start, we, we can, about Twitter drop number seven. What, what do we have? We're looking at millions of dollars spent of our tax dollars spent by the FBI to pay Twitter to, uh, to fight disinformation? Well, I think, Brian, what's really telling about this latest batch from uh, Twitter is really the dates and the specificity. First of all, the key email occurred the day before the New York Post released its story. So the FBI was there before this ever was made public saying, don't run the story effectively. And what's telling about that is that we know that when the FBI got the laptop, FBI agents essentially quashed 
the investigation and suppressed it before the election. But now we know that they went further than that and actually reached out to social media to censor the story. This is weeks before the election. And keep in mind that the laptop was a target-rich environment for criminal conduct. It showed various potential crimes being committed. So you would think the FBI would be all over it. But instead, they did not pursue the investigation aggressively, while they did aggressively pursue the censorship of the story. And what's amazing is that we don't know this special teleport communication that was going on between certain people who got security cleared with Twitter and the FBI. And we also know that there was at least a dozen FBI agents employed with Twitter, including James Baker, 80 agents on this paying 3.4 million. What could that communication have been that made Twitter say, we got to kill this story. Obviously same thing with Zuckerberg and, and, and meta and Instagram and everything else. And not only that frees any account that retweeted that story, What do you think that communication could have said, or was it a threat? Well, I think it's clearly uh, coercive to get these types of uh, calls and meetings from the FBI. But they didn't need much coercion. That's the problem. I mean, this is really censorship by proxy or surrogate. What do you mean, that they were willing to do anything to make sure Trump lost? Yeah, and I think that, you know, for years, uh, some of us have been writing about um, our belief that the U.S. government was behind much of the censorship that was carried out on comp- by companies like Twitter. And even though the First Amendment applies to the U.S. government, it can apply to agents of the U.S. government. And so what I've been writing about, what others have, have raised, is whether these companies became agents of the government. Well, it does appear now that that was the case. Twitter now says that they did act effectively as agents. And the reaction of the media has been largely not to cover it because they've really lost that room for plausible deniability. You know, for years, they said there wasn't censorship. There wasn't shadow banning. There wasn't blacklisting. All of that now appears to be untrue. So the only thing left is to say nothing at all, which is what we're, we're seeing in the media. They're just not covering it because they don't have anything to say. It's hard to be a censorship apologist when the story indicates that what you've said for the last two years is untrue. Yeah, so Michael Schellenberger writes this. He writes uh, from Elvis Chan. He publishes this. Elvis Chan is an FBI agent all over this story. Every time you see Elvis, he's everywhere. Uh, Note to Twitter folks. Heads up. I'll be sending a teleporter link for you to download 10 documents. It is not spam. Please Please confirm receipt that you get it. That was the day before the Hunter Biden laptop story came in. So how would we know about the Hunter Biden laptop story? Well, how would we know? Because Johnny Mike Isaac, Johnny Mac Isaac, the guy who owned the computer repair store in um, in December of 2019, gave it to the FBI. He called. His dad called in October. The FBI didn't want it. They finally came down with a subpoena and took it. In August, he gives it to Rudy because they're not doing anything with it, and he feels a sense of patriotism to get this story out. He can't believe what's on this laptop. How do we know that Rudy, they knew that Rudy was doing it? Because evidently they tapped Rudy. They were following Rudy to find out what he was up to. And when he contacted Miranda Devine to make it clear they're going to the New York Post, they knew exactly when this story would hit, October 14th. And then you go back and see what was going on with communications with Twitter. Am I correct, Jonathan? Well, I mean, that is exactly what we have to investigate. You know, what's telling about the media 
silence. If you compare it to reaction during the Nixon period, when the FBI was accused of being essentially a political uh, bureau, and the media was all over it, rightfully so, and demanded the reforms that we put in place to keep the FBI from being engaged in domestic politics. Now, here you've got direct evidence of the FBI involved in a censorship program, killing stories that might work against the Biden uh, campaign. And the media is totally silent because on this occasion, the FBI was working for Democratic interests, not Republican interests. But it shouldn't matter. I know. So you know what's interesting is so when the Washington Post, New York Times, CBS, ABC, uh, BBC all come out um, and say, yeah, this story was true. And upon further respect, you know, we've investigated it. And the the laptop is real and the contents are authentic. I thought they might be prepared to express dual outrage in what the social media companies were up to with the FBI. But they're not. Their silence shows nothing has changed and that this could still happen. Matt Taibbi, as you know, does not go to conservative cause. I'm sure he never voted uh, for Donald Trump, was on with Russell Brand on his podcast. And Russell Brand is, a, I guess, he's somewhat of a, a, a sober voice, a middle voice, uh, not known for somebody as a great journalist. But I thought we shared this exchange. Cut 14. You can kind of maybe justify there being some kind of involvement in suppressing this or that. I I guess there's an argument for that, but they're doing it at a level that's so micro and so ridiculously thorough that it can't possibly be anything but a a dystopian project. I mean, they want to absolutely control or at least have some impact on basically every communication that happens on their platform, which seems crazy to me. I don't know about you, but that seems that seems more in the realm of Orwell to me. So he was talking about Twitter being trying to involved in everything. The FBI was trying to get on Twitter to stop people with about 12 followers. Yeah. No, that's the uh, amazing thing about this. And it shows the insatiable appetite for censorship once you allow it to occur. But there's even more worrisome signs that we're seeing. The Washington Post manufacturedly reported how Biden allies are creating a sort of alliance to go after witnesses expected to be called by Congress, witnesses against the Biden. Uh, They're planning defamation lawsuits and media campaigns to hammer anyone who comes forward. And once again, the media sort of shrugs this off, Um, even though all of this speaks to a level of government control, not just of the FBI, but of the media. That's what makes this such a huge scandal for our country. And unfortunately, um, you can have a de facto state media that acts by consent rather than coercion. I mean, we we sort of saw that in the Raddatz interview recently with the governor of Texas, saying, how dare you refer to our borders as open and that this is a crisis. Um, well, that's virtually identical to the, what you just played from the Biden White House. Uh, their argument that just calling this a crisis is making this your fault, not ours. Yeah, I, I want to get to that. Title 42 is extended. And look, I don't think Title 42 is being enforced. As, you know, I think Bill Malusian reported that only 7% of the people were expelled under Title 42, which means we're in a pandemic. You got to go. You can't come. Uh, and we're going to expel almost everybody except for certain countries. Now that the pandemic is over on some aspects and not others, 
they said Title 42 should go away. And then uh, Judge uh, Justice Roberts stayed that for at least a day. Legally, what do you think is going to happen here? Because if you are you going to base this just on the situation at the border or base it on the situation with the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the problem is, of course, the, the Biden administration really has reached a level of incomprehensibility. You know, they they use the pandemic when they want to expand the president's powers. And then they they say that it's over when they want to do things like remove barriers on those people crossing the border. Um, what Roberts did is fairly predictable. Yesterday when I was on Fox, I, I noted that, you know, it's ironic that, that he got this issue because um, he was the deciding vote the last time the Supreme Court considered the stay in Mexico policy. So he and Kavanaugh joined the liberal justices in voting for the Biden administration and saying that they could get rid of this policy. The problem is I think that Roberts, who's a really strong institutionalist, um, I thought probably would want his colleagues to be able to see this this appeal to allow them to weigh in. And that's what I think he did. I think the Biden administration still has his vote and Kavanaugh's. Uh, their view is that a president has this authority. So it's still the Biden administration's game to lose. But uh, I think that Chief Justice Roberts wanted to give his colleagues a chance to weigh in because it was a five to four vote last time they considered it. January 6th uh, came to their conclusion, gave their report, and they recommend the president of the United States uh, be brought up on charges. After 18 months, uh, they've been finally uh, came to this conclusion yesterday. Uh, here's Jamie Raskin, cut 33. We believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This statute makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. In other words, to make an agreement to impair, obstruct, or defeat the lawful functions of the United States government by deceitful or dishonest means. So I understand what he said, but what does it mean legally for the former president? I think that he does not have to be concerned about this referral. I I don't think that the Department of Justice is going to take the referral particularly seriously. They often view these referrals as a bit of an annoyance. The question is what Jack Smith, the special counsel, may do. I still believe that the greater threat for former President Trump is the Mar-a-Lago part of the special counsel investigation. And the difference explains why this referral— Special counsel's doing both, Jonathan Turley? They are. They are. And and the difference explains why uh, what happened yesterday was more performative than investigative. And that is they keep on, from the very beginning, Cheney, uh, her primary evidence was what Trump failed to do. And they kept on going back to letters that weren't sent, appointments that were not made, um, and saying all of this is evidence of these crimes. It's very hard to make a criminal case over things that you didn't do uh, in this type of context. Mar-a-Lago involves action. Now, you can disagree with whether they're crimes, but those are actions as opposed to inaction. So that represents more of a threat. I don't think that what we heard yesterday, which was basically a rehash of what we heard from the beginning of the committee, really makes out a credible criminal case as a criminal defense attorney. 
I would not be particularly worried about that part. I would be focusing on Mar-a-Lago. Lastly, uh, when you look at this entire case, I don't understand why the Democratic House wants the president, former president's tax returns. 30 seconds. What, what, what is that based on? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, they're, they're going to continue to pursue this. Um, the fact is that Congress gets a lot of leeway in acquiring tax records. The federal courts have largely supported them. And so they will be allowed to get that uh, information. There's obviously an effort to create multiple fronts against Trump uh, to see if he effectively uh, is finished by exposure. Um, that can backfire. You know, that's the problem with things like the referral yesterday. Uh, you know, you can actually push people over to Trump's camp that might not be there. And so they may be dramatically overplaying their hand. Trump is facing some serious threats here. I mean, I think Mar-a-Lago is a serious threat. Gotcha. Some of these other cases are serious threats. I just don't think the J6 referrals gotcha. would be in that category. Jonathan Turley, you're the best. Thanks so much. Back with you guys okay. in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I don't know where they're all coming from. I mean, it's been pretty weird. I've gotten threats, and, you know, there's there's been harassment and all that stuff. But that comes with the territory. I'm not going to complain about it. But certainly the, the press backlash has, has been all of the same type. I mean, it's been remarkable to see how they're all using the same language and everything. It's, it's almost like they got a memo from somewhere, which is incredible. I don't know how they, don't, they think this isn't a story to, to see screenshots of... You know, where it says the FBI has asked you to, to look at this and this and this. Um, that's not a story. I, I I don't know any journalist who would look at that and not think that a real journalist who would look at that and not think, well, that's cool. That's interesting. We we got to we got to learn more about that. Matt Taibbi just uh, to exasperated talking to Russell Brand, the actor, comedian, uh, about the backlash from the coverage he got. But and also people he just is befuddled like we are. The other people aren't covering this story. They're only covering it because Elon Musk is doing some eccentric things and banning certain people that they disagree with. But they're not looking at the substance of the story and saying, can you believe the FBI is in on a daily basis with Twitter? And you can imagine with Facebook. But what we've already confirmed, can you believe that? But no, the answer is no, I can't believe that. And I'm not interested in that. How much longer can they avoid a story that matters so much? We'll find out. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West will be with us. I want to really dive into what's happening at the border because they're setting bad records every day. It's- 
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We know smugglers uh, will try to spread misinformation to take advantage of these vulnerable uh, migrants. But I want to be very clear here. Uh, The fact is that the removal of Title 42 does not mean the border is open. Uh, Anyone who suggests otherwise is simply doing the work of these smugglers who, again, are spreading misinformation and which are which is very dangerous. Unbelievable. Uh, This talking point from Democrats led by the White House, that if you bring up that you have totally allowed thousands, millions to come through our country illegal. If you point it out that it's an open border, we're the problem. Well, I'm going to continue to point it out. So is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West from the American Constitutional Rights Union, executive director and former congressman from Florida. Colonel, can you believe this tactic? No, I can't. Merry Christmas, and it's good to be with you, Brian. I I watched the interview of Martha Raddatz and then, of course, that soundbite from uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre. You know, I don't understand how they believe that trying to cast blame on people that are recognizing that it's an issue with 5 million people coming across the border illegally, 1 million uh, gotaways. We have no idea who they are, where they are. That's our fault. And the fact that Martha Raddus would say that she's never heard the President Biden say open border, the only people that are saying open borders are the ones that are causing the problem, well, it's the policies. And if you want to not try to not connect the rescinding of Title 42 to what's happening along the border. Why are there people stacked up just waiting on the other side of the Rio Grande River in in Juarez, Mexico, uh, to be able to to come across uh, come Wednesday? Uh, Good thing the Supreme Court decided there would be a stay on the lifting of Title 42 for now. And let's see what the administration says by 5 p.m. today. But obviously they're not enforcing it. We have record numbers coming across already, 8,000. Uh, remember, we thought 2000 was a catastrophe. Jay Johnson said 2000 is almost impossible to handle. And then 4000 mm-hmm. for one month for Trump. One month. And he had to quickly get on top of that, fixed it, uh, got it unbelievably low. And now we're at 8000. There's no hope of containing that. So that's why Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, and West Virginia, Wyoming got together, 19 states, and said to the Supreme Court, leave Title 42 in place. And they did. Well, that's true, and that's the great thing with the Constitution is the only place where states can go to the court of original jurisdiction is the Supreme Court if they're going to petition the government for redress of grievances. And when you think about this grievance that we see happening, this affects every single state in the United States of America. It affects them by way of the the drug trafficking crisis, the human and sex trafficking crisis, the stress on uh, good services that have to be provided. And these, again, are people that are here illegally. And another thing that's pretty interesting, you just had the North Carolina Supreme Court rule four to three that uh, voter ID is racially motivated. We're allowing people to come into this country without any type of ID whatsoever. They're getting on planes. They're getting on buses. We are upside down as a nation. And to try to, again, push this off on people that recognize an issue, this is an issue such as yourself, myself, and others, uh, this is unconscionable. It, it is really a complete dereliction of duty. I just don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And if you think it's just a Texas-Arizona problem, you're not paying attention in Denver 
1,146 people since December 9th, 408 migrants in emergency shelters, 153 in migrants in partner shelters. That costs a ton of money. It's stressing the city. In New York, we're absolutely stressed. You guys have spent $4 billion on Operation Lone Star, and now that was without flooding with the National Guard yesterday to El Paso. El Paso's an absolute hellhole. Listen to how KGP mm-hmm. describes this. Cut 16. El Paso's Democratic mayor has declared a, a state of emergency, and he said that he would only do that when he felt he could no longer keep his community or the asylum seekers safe. He's saying that that time is now ahead of Title 42 expiring. Um, what is the White House response to that? So, look, we have, uh, from day one, President Biden has taken steps to reduce disorderly migration while expanding legal pathways uh, for orderly migration. We are in uh, constant communication with the mayor of El Paso. Uh, We're surging uh, resources to the border. We're going to continue to do the work that is needed. She's lying. She's flat out lying. I mean, did you see the airports? Do you see this video? You see the streets? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been to El Paso many times, and, and I can't even imagine uh, what it means for the people there as far as their safety and security. But then let's also talk about the weather that's about to drop and the fact that you have people that are out there just sleeping on the streets, sleeping in the airports. I mean, this is a humanitarian crisis. And the president has not done anything from day one other than to reverse the policies of Donald Trump that kept our border under control. And if she wants to say that they're surging resources to the border by taking air marshals away from their primary duty at a time of increased travel. Uh, And we have millions of people here illegally that we don't know who they are, where they are. We're just opening ourselves up to something very catastrophic. So the Texas National Guard, we understand, is now it's going to cost you guys money in Texas, 400 troops and equipment to uh, through uh, aboard four C-130J cargo planes as part of the enhanced border security effort, uh, a federal policy that used the health code to quickly expire, to expire until 42. So that's the official thing. So now we're getting National Guard there. To do what? We still have too many people. Do you know in New York they had an emergency session yesterday? They might, for the third time, build a soft-sided facility, a tent, at Randall's Island. They put one of the Bronx, they took it down. They put one of the Randall's Island, they took it down. Now they're going to put it back again. While we have 32,000 illegals in our city, stressing every aspect of services from buses to schools. So why does this guy get a pass? How we screwed up Afghanistan, and now we're seeing what's happening on our own border. This is the worst administration in my lifetime. No, you're absolutely right. And he gets a pass because no one is talking about it on the legacy media, mainstream media channels. There are people in the United States of America that have no clue about what is going on on the border because they tune in to certain media outlets that's not talking about it. So I think that this is what needs to happen. If you're going to push our National Guard down there, uh, the state of Texas is going to have to uh, declare a, a, a border control zone because right now the cartels control the border on the Mexican side and this side, and we're going to have to start undermining their control. We have to go after their bank accounts. We're going to have to start to deport individuals back across that border ourselves as a sovereign state. And yes, we're allowed to do that by the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, Clause number 3. 
Why we're not doing it? I, I cannot answer that, but it needs to be done because the Biden administration is not going to protect the sovereignty of this state nor the sovereignty of the United States of America. So listen to Sam Rodriguez, the director of the El Paso International Airport, Cut 22. Next two weeks, we're expecting almost uh, 200,000 folks uh, to come through our airport in and out. And uh, it certainly presents a challenge if you're trying to get, get out of the region, uh, as some of these migrants are. Um, it's, it's hard for them to find that ticket uh, over the next couple of weeks. So when people land in El Paso, 200,000 people, they're going to have to make their way through these bodies laying down there, uh, getting their rest, uh, just going for shelter. I mean, think about this. If you land in El Paso, you're going to think, what country am I in? Yeah, you, you're not, obviously, it seems, in the United States of America, you're in some third world backwater country. And that is what happens when you have people like Corinne Jean-Pierre, the Biden administration, that is abdicating their duty and responsibility to protect the American people and to protect our sovereignty and to make sure that our means of transportation and our terminals are safe and clear of individuals. You just can't have people squatting there. And, oh, by the way, what's going to eventually happen? Will they be put on air or airplanes and allowed to transit anywhere in the United States of America without any type of identification. And this is something that I saw recently out in the middle of Odessa Airport where people were going through TSA. They couldn't speak English. They had no picture ID. They just had one person that was, you know, saying, yes, this person is with me. And as a matter of fact, they did not even know their own age. Uh, this is appalling what is happening, and it is an impeachable offense. And I am hoping that the House uh, Republican majority will get after this and hold uh, Alexander Mayorkas and the president accountable. I, I want them to change things, too. Whatever leverage they need, they have to get this fixed yeah. uh, and then lose people. Yes, so I want to get your take on this Twitter scandal that most of the media is ignoring that we will not. What I find interesting is Elon Musk picks some middle-of-the-road uh, journalists to work on this. Barry Weiss, formerly the New York Times, now Substack. Uh, Matt Taibbi. I'm not sure. Uh, Allison, who does Matt write for now, but not known as a right-wing conservative? Oh, he wrote for Substack. And then Michael Schellenberger, you've seen all over this channel, uh, he just had the latest. For the last two weeks, look for the latest batch as we look at Twitter's interaction with the FBI. Some of which Twitter was yeah. saying, guys, you got to back off. What you're doing doesn't make any sense. So Michael Schellenberger has a lot to go through. But here's how he summarized it. Cut one. Well, we spent a couple of weeks looking at a lot of the internal emails and Slack direct messages among employees at Twitter. And the picture you get is one of existing FBI agents outside of Twitter and former FBI officials joining Twitter. You mentioned the former general counsel of the FBI becoming the uh, the deputy general counsel of Twitter. Also, the deputy chief of staff of the FBI went to Twitter. In fact, there were so many FBI officials at Twitter that they had their own internal messaging system. They actually had their own cue card to kind of train people going from FBI to Twitter. And so there was this relentless pressure by external FBI agents on Twitter to basically adapt its uh, content moderation, also to share information then you had these forces inside Twitter, former FBI officials, particularly Jim Baker, who very strenuously argued for the censorship of the New York Post reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop and the emails which showed these very questionable business dealings with China and other countries. So nobody's picking this up as they're writing it. Uh, I mean, this is astounding. What is what stands out for you about this whole exchange? I don't know how much you've had a chance to dive into it. 
Yeah, yeah, I have. And what is alarming to me is that how can the American people have trust and confidence in a federal government agency called the Federal Bureau of Investigation when we know that they were embedded into an organization, a media outlet, and they were suppressing the free speech and freedom of expression, the constitutional rights of the American people. So, again, this would be something that everyone should be alarmed about. And thank God Elon Musk did by Twitter. Thank God that he released that to independent journalists who are not going to be partisans uh, that have a, res- uh, a level of respect. Now they're getting attacked, of course. But what kind of country are we living in where you have, you know, thousands of people just, you know, laying around in an airport like in El Paso, and we have the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, suppressing free speech or suppressing uh, the freedom of press. These are constitutional issues, and what the House GOP majority has to do is leverage the power of the purse against the FBI, the Department of Justice, and get to the bottom of this. And lastly, just to give you an idea of the outrage and the disconnect, Ted Lieu, a California Democrat, writes this, tweets this. I read these breathless Twitter file supplements from Matt Taibbi, so you don't have to. Here's the summary. Twitter disagreed with the FBI. Matt Taibbi tweets back, it is very odd that people like Ted Lieu think the FBI-DHS relationship with Twitter and other platforms is a partisan story. It's taking place and grown under both Republican and Democratic administrations. This concerns everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. that, he just can't yeah. believe it. He can't believe that people are just dismissing it and talking about, maybe my words, January 6th. Yeah, well, the thing is that to the progressive socialist left, as long as it allows political advantage for them, they really don't care. Uh, these people are totalitarian and tyrannical in nature. And think about this. Out of the entire Democrat Party, only one Democrat congressman, that's Ro Khanna of, uh, of I California, I believe, has spoken out against this. Only one. That should tell you everything that you need to know about the direction of the Democrat Party and what they believe is acceptable. All right, uh, Congressman, thanks a lot. Have a great Christmas. You too, my friend. God bless you. Uh, you. You and your family. When we come back, I'll take your calls. Man, you have a lot to talk about. 1-866-408-7669. Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I had a similar reaction to meeting him. I'm usually pretty good at reading people. I had a really tough time reading him. Some of the things that he, that uh, were suggestions, like I was very skeptical initially of the idea of putting all this out on Twitter first. You know, I'm a long form reporter. I, I like to explain everything, you know, and all that. But there, there's a kind of brilliance in using Twitter to flay Twitter, uh, like, and, and it's kind of also a burn on the regular media who tightly controlled Twitter for so long. Um, it, it, like, there, there's a there, there's a little bit of genius in that that I didn't recognize at first. He's an interesting person and and difficult to categorize, um, but I think that's a that's a long term job. Uh, <laughs> rather than trying to do the spade work of, of, you know, digging into these docs and figuring out what they mean. That's so interesting, him talking to Russell Brand on a podcast, saying that what did he thought when Elon Musk first contacted him. But now he says it's brilliant. Uh, call my fillet to Twitter on Twitter. 
John, listening in South Carolina. Hey, John. Hey, how you doing, Brian? All good. What's on your mind? Uh, I appreciate all you're doing and everything, but I think you're wasting your time. Why? Um, what's going to keep this idiot at the end of everything that needs to be done to Hunter, to him, to um, Jean-Pierre, all these people lying to us? He, at the end, he's going to just preemptively pardon everybody, including himself, and we're dead in the water. I don't know. You, I don't think a, a president can pardon himself. He'd have to fire himself and then have a vice president no, do that, maybe. I mean, but let's see. Let's see if we get there. John, let's see what gets exposed. And, and let's find out what's happening. And it doesn't mean I don't want you, and I'm sure you don't either. You want Republicans doing something proactive, like fixing the border as well as finding out why they broke it. You know, finding out what's happening with social media happened in the past, also straightening it out. So don't just get names and numbers. But I want I want this fixed forever. And, and you know, I, you have nothing but my word. But if they were screwing Democrats in favor of Donald Trump and Republicans, I would be just as outraged. I don't I don't want the FBI leaning on any social media, whether it's Truth Social or whether it's Facebook. So I, I do think they got to do two things. Find out what happened and fix it. Fix the border, then find out who broke it. Steve WLAD in Bethel, Connecticut. Steven. Yes, good morning and uh, happy holidays. Same to you. Uh, two things. Um, now that the colleges are closed for the holidays, they should bust all these migrants to, say, like Harvard, Georgetown, uh, Berkeley. You know, they have these dormitories <laughs> wide open. Yeah, why not? And, uh, you know, I mean, they're all liberal. They want them. Yeah, that that wouldn't happen. But I mean, it's the same premise with the cities. I mean, sending people to the cities, the sanctuary cities. Same thing. They yeah, they let them put those pup tents up in uh, right in the middle of their square in Harvard. Those soft side of facilities. Maybe you can't get them into dorms, uh, but maybe there's some vacant colleges out there uh, that they've been driven out of business over the last few years that you might be able to put them in. Uh, and and all these people should just check their paychecks. And see how much money goes to taxes. And then ask yourself, would you rather go to Americans or people who just want to come here from another country because they feel like it? I'm more for the American story. And then let them go through the process to become an American. Don't break our laws. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world. Yeah, the same place where Robert De Niro's house was robbed, but it wasn't really that uncommon. Why? Because the person who who robbed him, well, they got him, burglarized, I should say. They ended up getting her. She's got 16 arrests this year for robbery and uh, 26 overall. Because in New York, you don't stay in jail. You're better off out and about, continuing to perpetrate whatever crime you you are, I guess, not that good at. We have a lot to go over. We'll do a simulcast with Barney and company and find out what's on his mind. 
with one of the top shows in Fox Business. Uh, but And Scott Mann, the lieutenant colonel, Scott Mann has done so much in Operation Pineapple with his best-selling book and what his operation did to get all of our allies and our, our Americans out of Afghanistan because President Biden left them all behind and couldn't care less about finding out who they were while embarrassing this nation. We have another special mission for Scott Mann, and he is on it. So before we get to Scott, big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do not inject politics into criminal charging decisions. And that's exactly what they've done. It's utterly worthless. It is not worth the paper it's written on. Uh, That is Trey Gowdy. January 6th committee wraps up. What have we learned? What happens now? And what will every network do now that the January 6th trial is over? Number two. The fact is that the removal of Title 42 does not mean the border is open. Uh, Anyone who suggests otherwise is simply doing the work of these smugglers who, again, are spreading misinformation and which are which is very dangerous. Unbelievable. You open up the border and you're mad that people bring it up. Welcome delay. Title 42 stays in place for now, but the invasion down south continues. It's the worst in our nation's history, and the borders are our VP, nowhere near the border. And the boss is in Delaware most of the time. Number one. I suppose that's why the Hunter Biden laptop story is significant, because there was obviously an assumption that that would have a negative impact on the election. So they repressed it. And now, 18 months later, mainstream media in our country, like the BBC, it's just, oh, yeah, that was true. That got repressed. Yeah. And, and Russell Brand is on it. Twitter drop number seven shows our taxpayer dollars and 80 agents paid millions to social media platforms to make sure the Hunter Biden story, the Burisma arrest, was strangled at birth under the guise of Russian disinformation. Michael Schellenberger, who was tasked by Musk to disseminate, explains, and he'll be joining us at one point in our show. But first, joining us now is Scott Mann. Scott, what special mission is thrust upon you now? Hey, Brian. How are you? Uh, Good. Merry Christmas, and uh, thanks thanks for having me on, man. Um you know, I tell you that the, right now, the, the the veteran community, particularly those working with our Afghan partners, is just really broken up over the arrest and detention and possible deportation of Abdul Wasis Safi, who is an Afghan special forces warrior who came across. For, he he made the the journey from South America to Central America through the Panamanian Darien Gap, and ultimately up to the border to seek asylum and was arrested with a group of uh, migrants from South and Central America. They were all released into the United States pending trial. He was arrested and charged and put in an orange drunk jumpsuit and told he will probably be deported. So out of everybody that comes through the southern border, we arrest the guy that's an, an Afghan officer who we trained, that you fought alongside, that we fought alongside as a country and couldn't get in, so frustrated he left fearing for his life. And that's the guy that sits in jail? Absolutely. And, and, and make no mistake, this is an Afghan special forces uh, warrior, right? He has, he has trained and fought alongside American Green Berets and other special operators. He is highly vetted um, and yet, you know, was, was detained and charged, put in an orange jumpsuit, and told he's, possibly, he's probably going to be deported. And this guy was being actively hunted by the Taliban after the collapse, Brian, like so many of our Afghan special ops brothers over there. It's just 
it's unbelievable, and the, and the veteran community is just decimated by it right now. So right now, he, he says this. He he did a phone call from prison. He goes, I was a special forces commando unit with the U.S. military. I wanted to come to the United States. I don't select another country to help me because I was with them. But I come here, and they put me in jail. So what have you yeah. done in terms of uh, taking action? Not that you haven't done enough for so many. Right. Well, I have to say that, that, that there are a range of people from the Moral Compass Federation, Brian. You and I have talked about them. Basically, groups like Operation Sacred, Sacred Promise and others have come together. We have 22 volunteer groups, and we're really just trying to raise our voice as veterans to say, look, Mr. President, you're really the only one who can, who can, who can address this, who can deal with this. We've, we've started petitions. We've gone on the news. Uh, we're trying to reach out on social media. And we're really just asking Americans, regardless of your political affiliation, you know, look at what's happening right now and and ask yourself, is this how we want to treat our partners? Is this how we want to treat our veterans? Because as my friend Nick Palmisano said, at some point, if we stay on this path, we become the bad guys. And that's what's breaking the heart of our veterans right now. No kidding. And after all that we've done good, you've done good. Uh, Here's Jennifer Griffin, who spoke to him. Cut 41. Cut 40. Abdul Wasi Safi was trained by the U.S. military to be an elite special forces commando in Afghanistan. When Kabul fell, Wasi was still fighting the Taliban in the north. When the last U.S. plane left Kabul, Safi went into hiding, moving from safe house to safe house arranged by U.S. veterans. Now Abdul Wasi sits in a Texas prison facing deportation back to Kabul. He described a year-long treacherous journey through 10 countries in which he was robbed, tortured, and beaten. It was the type of treatment he expected from the Taliban. The Panama police has uh, tortured me in front of all people. They beat me. They call me terrorist. So that was in Panama. That's how brutal this route is. And still he gets here, and then he's probably shocked. His brother is here, right? Yeah, his brother was an interpreter for the U.S., and, and, is, and is here, you know, legally. Like, this guy could not be more vetted, Brian. And, you know, he actually did, you know, what asylum is designed to do. You know, that, that actually is, you know, a bona fide case of asylum, yet we arrest him and, and we release all of the others that came across with him who have had no affiliation in supporting the United States or standing shoulder to shoulder with us. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just unimaginable. And, and I tell you, I, you know, my question and the question that so many veterans are asking right now, Brian, is how much more do you want from us? I mean, we gave everything that was asked of us on a volunteer basis when we were attacked on 9-11. We made a stand. We, we went over and over to these deployments. We built this partner capability, and they stood with us. And now we are literally turning our backs on them, and now we're arresting them. And what this is – I mean, we – you know, I lost a friend um, to suicide a couple weeks ago because of this crap, and, and it's like – I'm watching my friends check out because of what this is doing to them at a, at a moral level. And I just don't understand, and we don't understand how our politicians can do this after years of service when the rest of the nation went on about its business. And it just, it's just devastating our population, and I don't get it. None of us understand. We just don't understand. I wish someone could explain this to us. So uh, Ben Owens, who's a U.S. veteran, do you know him? Very well. Yeah, so here's what he was saying about Safi, Cup 43. The night he crossed, I think he was with 90-plus other migrants, all of whom were detained, all of whom have been released. But the one dude that served with American forces who we know 
you know, has America's best interest at heart uh, to the point that he would put himself in harm's way to defend it is still being held. He is exactly who he says he is. We've got all the certifications. So it it just is, it's almost targeting now. And says, oh, well, he got caught up with yeah. a group of bad guys. It's targeting. Right. I, I don't understand. Right. Would, have you ever break down and talk about the chain of communication? Do you think this could just be a misidentification communication? And is the Pentagon helping at all? The Pentagon, is, as far as I've seen, has, has, has done nothing in the public space to address this. If they're doing it, it's behind the scenes. But I would think, again, where are the, you know, where are the retired you know, generals and admirals on this one? Like just coming into the public space and advocating and demanding uh, at least full vetting for him before a deportation that will result in, in certain death for him. You know? and, and I would ask the Pentagon to step forward on this in the public domain. Right. Because, again, look at what this is doing to the veteran population and the active duty population. Brian, I have had so many emails from active duty Green Berets who are saying things like this is not what I signed on for. I'm out. I'm retiring. I'm dropping my paperwork. This is not what I'm about. And the the Pentagon scratches their head and wonders why retention and recruiting is so dismal. It's because most of the recruits come from military families and we're telling our kids don't join up. Right. Because because this is not what we are about. And again, at some point, you know, we start to become the bad guys on this. Now, the one thing the government may come forward with, and I haven't seen this yet, is a lot of our Afghan commandos, they have numbers in their phone that are Taliban phone numbers. Right. And, and, and what we need to understand as Americans is we asked those guys to call the Taliban on a regular basis when we were working with wow, them. It's an insurgency, you know. And so what happens is when they come through, those numbers are in their phone. And they also got calls and texts from the Taliban as things were as they were overrunning the country. But this was part and parcel of doing an insurgency in that country. And if that is what we're holding guys on, Right. That, then there is a whole range of U.S. special operators that can address that derogatory phone number or whatever and vet it. And if they need to do more vetting, do it. But to send this guy back to detain him after all that he's done, it's it's just inexcusable. So, Scott, you have a petition. How do we how do we join that petition? I'll get it over to you. Uh, we're asking for as many uh, signatures as we possibly can. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll also post it uh, on our website, OE, uh, uh, Operation Pineapple Express Release.org. If you go there, we'll post the petition there, OPE Release.org. Uh, and we just, it's just a quick digital click, but we, we're, we're trying to get this in front of the commander in chief with as many signatures as we can so that the American people can demand that our veterans and our Afghan allies are treated with the respect they deserve after years of fighting. We have a mutual friend who prepared the briefing about everything that went wrong. He was tasked with uh, with, with Afghanistan and the exit. Yes. And do you know the president, you might know this already, but the president first said, well, isn't that, it's too long, he's not going to read it. Then they said, you got to be prepared to deliver it verbally. And they said, fine. And then when they said it's going to be 45 minutes, they said, that's too long. So he knocked it down to 20 and the president refused to take the rundown of everything that he did wrong leaving Afghanistan. So the right. president still and, has yeah. not done an after action. There still has not been. This was the, the CENTCOM report that was presented and developed, you know, that had the down to the second detail. I used it a lot in my Pineapple Express book. 
Um, and what I can tell you is that report was so detailed and it covered what really went down. And there was such an opportunity for lessons learned there, particularly considering our 13 fallen warriors and their families and the hundreds of Afghans killed. Uh, there's such an opportunity for lessons learned. And our commander in chief did not even take the briefing. And, and again, just a complete slap in the face to the veteran and the active duty population who supported that withdrawal and did and risked it all. And then those 13 who fell uh, for our commander in chief to not have even taken the briefing. Um, and most people don't know that, but that's exactly what went down. It still has not happened. And there's been zero accountability on, on what is one of the most grievous uh, abandonments, systemic abandonments in our nation's history. It's a stain uh, on, on our reputation in the world, and it's causing a national security backlash that we have yet to feel the real brunt of. Absolutely. Uh, he'll probably be out of office by then. Uh, Scott Mann, thanks so much. And when you give me that link to sign up for that petition, I'm sure all listeners would do just that. I appreciate it. And I do ask anybody, regardless of your politics, is to take a look at this petition. This is about what's do- doing what's right, not doing what's politically correct. And I'll send you the link, Brian. Thanks always okay. for giving us a voice. And uh, Merry Christmas, man. Uh, same to you, Scott. Keeps on giving back to the country uh, all these years later. Uh, pick up Operation Pineapple Express for Christmas, the incredible story of a group of Americans who undertook one last mission and honored a promise in Afghanistan, a promise the president ignored. Brian Kilmeade Show. Honest commentary, unique opinions, no agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we're back. one 408 A lot to discuss today. And just to go over with uh, Michael Schellenberger, uh, and we'll be able to post this interview online when he comes on. He is one of the three, uh, three journalists selected by Elon Musk to go through these tweets and interactions and communications on Twitter in the years leading up to the 2020 election. And it is so disturbing, I can't put it into words. I'm incensed that more people aren't incensed by all this, let alone uh, right behind that is what's going on at the border. But overall, in an effort to defend against foreign intrusion, they put together a a task force, FBI, DHS, in order to stop the next hit. And I I stop right there and I say, wait a second. Yeah, I know the the Russians did buy some Facebook pages and they did have some bots out there calling for fake demonstrations. All right, good. But the Mueller report showed that there was no collusion. There was no grand plan to circumvent an election, even though everyone was comfortable saying that until 2020 happened and Trump finally lost. They admitted that he won in 2016. But the Mueller report comes out. You can read it. There were disturbing things that was going on there. But there was no collusion, no coordination. There was no major impact that the Russians played on this election. They went through social media. Yeah, they played a role. Sure. But not enough to flip an election in seven or eight different states. Be aware of it. But the FBI took that as a go sign to do everything they could to make sure Joe Biden was elected, in my view. The records show that Elvis Chan contacted Yoel Roth, the vice president of Twitter, who's in charge of uh, uh, ways and practices. Before the New York Post story dropped, Elvis said in a big effort to guard against foreign interference. Then suddenly they have this teleport communication between the FBI and top secret people that had top secret clearances at Twitter. Ten separate Documents 
They this communication said, make sure you open it up. The New York Post story comes out. They quickly take it down and they destroy the and they they freeze the account and everybody that tried to retweet it. What went on in that communication? Did Roth really believe that that was Russian disinformation? Was it really right to take down an entire newspaper? We know part seven also shows the FBI paid Twitter three point four million dollars to investigate foreign intrusion. They know that part of that three point five four million was inviting different mainstream media outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post down to the Aspen Institute to do tabletop exercises should stories about the Burisma hiring of Hunter Biden, should stories about Hunter Biden's laptop and CEFC and all his business dealings come forward, how would they handle it? They actually were going through drills. Do you believe this? This is our money. So basically, the Twitter files reveal that Hunter Biden's business dealings were all authentic and should have been exposed to the electorate. Schellenberger says this was an influence campaign by the FBI that eventually worked when Twitter censured Hunter Biden's scandalous laptop and numerous other accounts that had very few followers that had people at Twitter saying, really, you want me doing this? Maybe it has a lot to do with how many FBI agents retired and then went to work for Twitter. Twelve of them. And they kept rotating through. They had their own Slack channel. When we come back, I'll take more of your calls. 1-866-408-7669. Crazy. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. We have a crime crisis in America. This was the second biggest issue behind inflation. Uh, with midterm voters was the crime rates. And now we learn we have 80, at least 80, FBI agents who were assigned to try to find disinformation on social media platforms. The problem I have with all this, beyond the fact that they never had the authority to do this, and this is a real example of the deep state here, is the fact that the FBI had the Hunter Biden laptop all along. They knew darn well that it was legitimate. And they knew darn well that there was information on there that was very damaging to Joe Biden's campaign for president. They knew that there was proof on there that showed the Biden family had been influenced peddling with our adversaries for over a decade. Right. Uh, and by the way, for uh, by the way, uh, Johnny, John Paul Mac Isaac, who had the laptop and he said they definitely knew what was on there and they definitely understood what was on there. And he said in October, he contacted the FBI and said, I got this laptop that Hunter Biden left, and now it belongs to me. I went through it on the hard drive, and there's some damning stuff. They didn't show up. He called them again. They finally showed his dad called for him. And his dad is a decorated veteran. And then finally they showed him December with the subpoena and said, well, taking it. Well, he had left a few copy on the hard drive, and they took it. And he didn't hear anything. Finally, in August, he contacted Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani was being uh, tapped. For some reason, they were investigating him. Uh, they found out that the New York Post uh, was getting that story from him on the laptop. And then they warned everybody that this big story is coming and look out for it. And they described it specifically, according to Mark Zuckerberg. William was on WTRC in Indiana. Hey, William. Hey, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. I've uh, talked to you several times. Um, as I was telling <clears throat> Pete, I called in, I don't know, it's been a couple of years now, and I talked to Pete Hetzek, he was filling in for you. And 
I had told him at that time, I said, you know, I'm so tired of the Republicans taking the high road. It leads nowhere. It's a dead end. I keep hearing about the talk track that the Democrats have and that they've got everybody's ear and they've got a great talk track. You know, the Republicans need to stand up, take a hold of this, grab it by the reins and go forward with this thing. It's again, I understand that the Democrats have the drive by media in their pocket. But they need to do something, and I'm speaking of the Republicans, of moving forward. Yesterday I had heard that they had just finished the hearings for January 6th, and shifty shift, one of these guys that had claimed that he had the bomb that was going to drop on Trump and put him away, never had anything. All these people that we hear of over and over and over that's in that Democratic administration and high-up officials, nothing ever happens to them. I, just, I know. I now he's heralded as a hero on every talk show. I, I don't know. I mean, he didn't do anything. Uh, what he does is he leaked all that information from Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony in the middle of his testimony. He was the only one that could have had it. We know that he stabbed Devin Nunes in the back multiple times. And we know everything that he said about the Mueller report was wrong. And also we know this. The big promise from Jamie Raskin that we have explosive new information never materialized. They have a lot of people that they talked to, and they took the 90 seconds that they wanted, the seven minutes that they needed. They didn't leave off, put on anything in there that would be a counter-narrative, and that's what's called producing. An ABC producer produced the January 6th results. That's James Comer this morning. He's going to be overseeing investigations. He's all over it. You know, Ari Fleischer is not one to give in to rhetoric. But he is somebody that weighed in on this last night. Cut three. How can anybody, though, inside the FBI trying to interfere in an election like this by suppressing information? The FBI's job is to investigate crimes. It is not to put its finger on the scale of American elections for or against anybody. It is not to put its finger on the scale of whether somebody's engaging in quote-unquote disinformation. It's none of the FBI's business. And so this is extraordinarily worrisome to see that the tentacles of the FBI, some elements in there, have extended into Twitter. And even Twitter started to resist the FBI in some ways as some of these emails start yeah, to show. They, did. they were so worried about the FBI's overreaching. Uh, this, is, this is extraordinary. And it is. And if you don't believe it, so heads up. Elvis Chan writes this to Twitter. Heads up. I'll be sending a teleport link for you to download 10 documents. It's not spam. Please confirm when you get it. It's not spam. That was the day before the big New York Post story dropped. Uh, let's go to Stuart. Listen on the TuneIn app in Orange County, California. Stuart. Hey, uh, Brian, just a quick thought regarding the Afghan soldier arrested at the uh, U.S. border. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's disgusting that it happened. Of all people, um, that are the floodgates, of all people, it's the floodgates. It's this guy that gets arrested. I think it's disgusting. I think there's two reasons why it's happening, though. Um, it's the optics of it. And I think the two reasons are why are that, number one, it's a reminder of the past, of Biden's abysmal failure uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan. And then, two, it's a 14 telling of the potential future. It shows that, uh-oh, there's Afghan citizens that are coming across the uh, the border. Alert, you know, who else is coming through? And so I think that's why it's uh, it's not being, it, I think that's why it's being acted on like yeah. this. Uh, I would say so. And you, what you're talking about is this uh, Afghan special forces that decided his brother was here already. He's trying to get out, Taliban trying to kill him. So he goes to our southern border with 90 people. He has uh, all these horrible situations as he 
went uh, through Central America. He finally gets to our border, and he's the one that gets arrested. Just about everybody else in his group gets to go through. When a thorough background check would show that he should be with all those Afghan refugees that went out uh, to the UAE and Qatar and all these other places. Neil, listening on WABC in Dutchess County. Hey, Neil. Hey, Brian. Uh, I'm going to ask your opinion about this statement that uh, Trump made a couple of weeks ago about the Constitution. But uh, first, I hope you can clarify something. I saw on Fox News that he said uh, terminate the Constitution. And a couple of days later on WABC, Curtis was saying that he had said suspend the Constitution. So uh, was it either or? or I haven't haven't memorized it, but he should have thought it through because it allowed the distraction uh, and it allowed the distraction instead of focusing on Twitter and what they're now revealing Trump made himself the news again. And I know these outlets just want to jump on anything Trump says. Uh, but when he said that, he became a distraction. You know he doesn't want to destroy the Constitution. You know what he's trying to say? Guys, Twitter put their hand on the election. The number one story should have been uh, with the corruption of Joe Biden. It was prevented from coming out. Let's do the election again. That's what he wanted to say. And then people probably told him, well, you can't do that. The Constitution doesn't allow that. So we'll suspend the Constitution. Knowing anything about Trump, that's exactly what happened. He didn't want to destroy the country. He was going to suspend the Constitution. He really didn't believe he lost. But when it came down to specifics on why he lost, he had no answer. And when other people stepped up, they saw an opportunity like uh, like his law team, which was the C-Squad. Uh, they stepped up and they said, well, this is my way to get close to the president. I'll tell him he won. And I got all these ways of proving it. And they couldn't prove it. And he didn't. Hank was on WNIS in Virginia Beach. Hank. Hey, how you doing there, Brian? Great. What's on your mind? Listen, you know, the whole term deep state and all that, you know what, you can call it whatever you want, but the FBI definitely put their hands on the on the uh, the outcome. And, you know, Trump, maybe he didn't act the right way. He could have came out and said it a different way. But as we all know now, it was all a true story. And if it all came out, we might have a different president. I mean, how many people that voted for Joe Biden, if they really knew that it was true about his son's dealings in that laptop how many people you think would have still voted for joe biden uh, i think they would. I think that's, that's a great question it's a great question because trump was coming on because he was starting to campaign with the big rallies again uh he was starting to re- uh, really soar but you got to ask the people of pennsylvania you got to ask the people of georgia you got to ask the people of arizona i mean they're the ones that flipped this thing and and the whole thing is if that story really got out there Remember, it was the mainstream media. It was Facebook. It was Twitter. It was Google. If you Google Trump, you got a nasty picture of him with orange hair. If you Google Biden, he's just like some handsome guy with glasses. The whole thing, all of it, social media searches was all anti-Trump. And it really is a shame. I just wish that Mr. Trump could have handled it better. But you know what? He's a human being. And, you know, it it, it was hard on him because he did a great job. His policies, second to none. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And I will say this. The one thing I would encourage, I always said that if Trump has a shot the second time around, he's got to change his game or show some wrinkles, show some how where he's going to change. And one thing happened yesterday in an interview on Breitbart. He came out and said, I was resistant to mail-in balloting. Now it's going to be part of my strategy where the Republicans can't reverse it in some of these states. So it's got to be part of the strategy. That is the first acknowledgement that you can't just pretend as if things haven't changed. I, I wish we didn't have election season. For some reason, we're heading that way. Maybe there'll be a bipartisan consideration in a few years in Congress to start making it election week at least. But now you're going to people voting as early as August, and you have debates that are in October. 
How does that, or maybe the one in one in September and the other two in October? So that's got to that's indeed got to be uh, that's indeed got to be adjusted. So uh, Trump's got a lot to a lot to legitimately run on, and he does best when he talks about things that could be different, what to look out for. A lot of things he said was going to happen actually did happen, but now we're seeing all these things that were happening on Twitter, a platform that he helped make through his tweets and his popularity. They were out to get him. I just want to see one story, how um, a story about Trump was wrong, and the FBI was working to correct it, correct it with Twitter. Not one of them so far. But I'll look. When we come back, Stuart Varney. I'll go on with Varney and Company. It'll be great. David Asman's in for Stuart. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. The Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we're going to be taking your calls in just a moment, so stay online. First, I'm going to do a simulcast on one of the hottest networks in the country, uh, the Fox Business Network, where David Asman filling in for Stuart Varney. We love to do this every single week, and we're going to be talking about a few things. I guess Drew Barrymore just did. Uh, an interview with the President of the United States, I'm sure uh, Brett Baer wasn't available. Maybe he's on vacation, or maybe Britt Hume could have stepped in for him. I'm sure that would have worked. Tucker Carlson would have done it. I'm sure we would have, or Bill Hemmer would have freed up his schedule. But Drew Barrymore was available, and she was really good in the movie. It is time for Mr. Brian Kilmeade. Brian, thank you so much for being here. I just want you to start with the Wall Street Journal editorial that appeared today. It reads, quote, Now New York Democrats tell us they have second thoughts on taxing the rich, adding that it's finally dawning on some New York Democrats that the steep the state's steep income tax rates are driving away top earners who fund essential public services. If only this wisdom had visited Democrats in Albany before they raised taxes last spring. This is actually happening in Democrat states all over the country where they have driven the main source of their revenue to places like Texas and Florida where there are no state taxes. There isn't. And and just keep in mind, too, I just said in this era of direct deposit and cashless where you don't really feel the tolls hit your car, you don't really see the cash because you use your credit card. And usually a lot of people watching us right now get direct deposit. They don't really flip to the back. And see how much taxes are taken out, David. You yeah. probably do, and uh, maybe the hosts <laughs> at Fox Business, but the average people don't. And I got to remind myself to go do that. Um, it's unbelievable how much they take out. Basically, for every ten dollars we make, we keep four. And then you turn around and you're vilified if you're somebody that gives into the system. They pretty much disbanded and discarded you if you were part of De Blasio or Governor Cuomo. To Hochul was the one who came out and said, basically, if you want to if you don't want to pay the taxes, good riddance. Now, to Adam's credit, he never felt that way. In fact, he reached out to Florida and he was saying, guys, you got to come back. We want you back in New York. And I was stunned by this. Not you probably weren't that high income, high income earners uh, pay 51 percent of all the taxes. So 51 percent of all the taxes are paid are paid by the top two percent. And when you lose 11 percent of your top earners over the last two years, that right. truly hurts at a time in which we're totally stressed between no one's riding the subways anymore, providing the revenue. They're, no one's riding mass transit. And think about how much money spent on illegal yeah. immigrants that were forced to house because we're a sanctuary city. 
Brian, what's happening? And you, and you didn't throw in the fact that all that COVID money that they got from the feds is drying up, that they got from federal taxpayers. So, so they, we are going broke, and I suspect the same is happening even in California. They had this huge surplus because of COVID money and because of Silicon Valley. Now that money's drying up. They're going to be in deficit as well. I want to switch to a, a really hard-hitting interview. I'm sure you've watched it because you watch all these things that you can talk about on Fox and Friends. President Biden and the First Lady sat down with one of the toughest interviews I've ever seen with actress Drew Barrymore. I just want to play it a little bit and get your reaction. Roll tape. You say um, that you're a good gift giver to Dr. Biden. Jill's favorite room in the house, do you know what it is? When Dr. Biden is starving and wants to be a little naughty, what snack does she get from the White House kitchen? If Dr. Biden has a free Friday night, does she want to go out or stay in? So who says Biden doesn't do hard-hitting interviews, Brian? Come on. Yeah, listen, no offense to Drew Barrymore, that her afternoon audience... That's lighter fare. That's why he said yes. Do you think he wants to sit down with Brett Baer? You think he wants to sit down with David Asman? You think he wants to sit down with Bill Hemmer? Do you think he wants to sit down with Tucker Carlson? Uh, no, because he has no good answers. Uh, yet he could say, hey, well, look how great my economy's doing. He thinks it's doing great. He could say, look at my election. It was hardly bad. I lost the House, but I gained a seat in the Senate. So he could decide to do that now. I mean, it's just so different from the previous predecessor, from his the previous oh. occupant of the White House, who took one and all, Trump all loved the it. time. Trump, Trump loved the tough questions because he could play with it as, as only he could. Uh, Brian, before you go, I, we have some breaking news, and I know you're, you're interested in the Live Golf Club, whatever they call themselves, that, that division that was being uh, boycotted by the Masters. Well, the Masters just cried uncle, and Live Golf players can now play in Augusta National. What does that mean? What's the importance of that? Well, that's one major, uh, so that's great, and I think it's so important because the best players in the world, uh, two-thirds of which went with Live Golf. They paid more. There was more, of a, it was more of a format that they liked. There were no cuts. When you're in the tournament, you played all the days, uh, and there was more appearance fees. So Live took a lot of great players, and after a while, you said, we're the PGA, how dare you? They say, okay, we could, you could go play in the European tour. You can go play in the Japanese tour. Why can't we, or the Eastern tour, why can't we play on, for each other's yeah. tour? So this yeah. is the first give. That means the better players can go, and this could show a coming together. Now, Tiger Woods told Greg okay. Norman, said, I will not uh, per, per, uh, support this unless Greg Norman's out. Greg Norman came back and said, I'm not going anywhere. So this is All the right. first break, the first thaw. It's good for the game. All right, Brian Kilmeade always knows the answers. Great to see you, Brian. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Go get him, David. And still ahead, we got Pete. All right, so... Uh, man, we have a lot to discuss. Uh, so that is good news about the Live Golf Tour because when Tiger Woods comes out, the most powerful name in sports, and says, yeah, there should be some type of merger. You know what I don't think there's going to be a merger? What I think there's going to be is an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to play on each other's tour perhaps. So you could sign with one, get the money, get the signing fee, but maybe play for the other. And maybe each tournament will decide if they're going to have it. But when you have Phil Mickelson and so many other great golfers, well-known golfers, on the Live Tour, you can't dismiss it anymore. Uh, Dustin Johnson, you can't dismiss it anymore. The, these great players are winning and leaving. And a lot of it has to do with, and I don't, I'm not involved heavily into the management of golf, 
But a lot of these golfers feel as though the PGA is very dictatorial. They're the only game in town. It's where you aspire. To get in is extremely tough. When you get cut, the money could be a lot better. As soon as the Live Golf Tour came out, the money came up. The criticism on Live is they're not looking to make a profit. They're looking to raise the profile of their investors and of the game and take on a behemoth. Usually there's a profit margin involved with this or a nonprofit involved. This is just capitalism. We're going to raise our profile. And it is a very, it's very much a Saudi fund back league. We'll see what happens. Brian Kilmeade Show. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. Coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Well, two people leading the charge when it comes to what happened in the 2020 election is John Levine with the New York Post. He's in studio. If you're watching Fox Nation, you recognize him. And Michael Schellenberger, he was picked by Elon Musk, one of three journalists, to go through the communications on Twitter what he bought for $44 billion, and tell us what he found in terms of coordination with the FBI or law enforcement. And it's been amazing. We are now on our seventh version. Michael Schellenberger at the bottom of the hour. And we'll analyze what he's done as well as what John's been writing about. And we have so much more to do. We also know this. Wake up in the morning and it turns out instead of doing a normal budget, we have a $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that's going to be jammed down our throats and most lawmakers to have no idea what's in it. I'm pretty sure that's not how you should be running the country. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. A Christmas gift that's even more alluring than lingerie? Naturally, nude pajamas by Pajamagram. Sensuous and soft, they look just as seductive as they feel. Get naturally nude pajamas today at Pajamagram.com. Number three. Do not inject politics into criminal charging decisions. And that's exactly what they've done. It's utterly worthless. It is not worth the paper it's written on. That's Trey Gowdy. He's a former prosecutor, congressman, talking about the January 6th committee as it's wrapped. What have we learned? What happens now? And what will every other network and newspaper obsess about next with Donald Trump? Number two. The fact is that the removal of Title 42 does not mean the border is open. (laughs) Uh, Anyone who suggests otherwise is simply doing the work of these smugglers who, again, are spreading misinformation and which are which is very dangerous. That is uh, pretty ridiculous. KJP, uh, the White House press secretary, welcome delay. Title 42 stays in place for now. But the invasion down south continues. It's the worst in our nation's history. And the borders are our VP. Nowhere to be found. Number one. I suppose that's why the Hunter Biden laptop story is significant, because there was obviously an assumption that that would have a negative impact on the election. So they repressed it. And now, 18 months later, mainstream media in our country, like the BBC, it's just, oh, yeah, that was true. That got repressed. That is Russell Brand, who sat down talking about Taibbi. Twitter, Twitter drops number seven, shows our taxpayer dollars and 80 agents paid millions of dollars to social media platforms to make sure, in one case, the Hunter Biden story never saw the light of day. It did, but then was suspended. Oh, the Burisma mess was strangled at birth under the guise of Russia disinformation. So let's talk to John Levine about that. John, I, I imagine being you, you know, you're, you're going to write this story, you're going to follow this beat. But now all of a sudden, this story is almost writing itself. 
right. about the revelations that come through. Opinions almost, it's taken out of it. What do you think is so t- striking for you with Schellenberger's reveal? For me, it was $3.4 million that they paid Twitter to do the things that they thought were necessary to stop foreign entities for infiltrating their platform. What we're seeing with every new Twitter files disclosure is the Twitter-FBI relationship gets closer and closer. It gets tighter and tighter. There's more and more people working together. And the FBI's involvement with respect to the Hunter Biden story is also getting closer and closer together. So that was a crazy reveal, what you just said about we're paying – You know, the, the FBI is a taxpayer-funded agency, and if, if they're paying Twitter – over $3 million. We're paying Twitter over $3 million. But what I found fascinating was just in the timeline of a lot of this stuff. So October 13th, Elvis Chan, I'm going to call him the handler, the FBI handler for Twitter. He's everywhere. Yeah. He's like this omniscient presence that is always, he's, he's the FBI's man when they email Twitter. He emails Yoel Roth, Twitter's head of trust and safety on the evening of October 13th and says, This is an important email. Please confirm receipt when you get it. We're sending you 10 documents that you need to look at immediately. We don't know what those documents were. 5 a.m. October 14th, New York Post publishes its first tranche of Hunter Biden stories, which then go on to be censored by the Twitter later that day. A few hours after that, we see from the Schellenberger release, Jim Baker, the deputy counsel for Twitter, former general counsel of the FBI, places a phone call to his counterpart at the FBI, whoever replaced him, and they have a conversation. Again, we don't know the details there. So there's a lot as, – as, as much as we're learning, every Twitter files drop also leaves more questions unanswered. We need to know what Elvis Chan sent to Yoel Roth on the 13th. We need to know what Jim Baker spoke about with the FBI on the 14th. Because one of the communications said – is anyone there with the top secret clearance? And they say Baker. And he goes, oh, yeah, why didn't I think of that? that what, how did I forget that? That James Baker's there, the guy that went from uh, – he was part of the Hillary Clinton investigation, right, basically right. said don't do anything, and then part of the Donald Trump uh, ruse, uh, basically make sure we do everything possible, and then goes to CNN for a brief period of time, then ends up at Twitter and stayed there till two Sundays ago right. until Elon Musk said, what the hell is he doing right. there? He basically was serving as the FBI's man inside the company. And in, in, in earlier Twitter files releases, we saw that when they were dis- debating what to do with the Hunter Biden stories that the Post published, it was James Baker who was the loudest, most persistent voice saying, this is a hack and leak. This has to be shut down. Even Yoel Roth was like, I don't know. But he was like, no, 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 this is a hack material. He was echoing the same talking points from his old masters at the FBI which were consistently trying to push Twitter to find evidence of foreign activity and Russian state actors operate on the platform, which Twitter consistently said they could not find. So they stopped it. And, you know, I had the computer repair person on today to get his reaction. He said, you should know this. Yeah, they took my laptop December, but my dad called the FBI about the laptop in October and they wouldn't even follow up. And in December, they finally showed up with a subpoena and said, give it to me. Now, he made copies of the hard drive just in case it disappeared. And by August, Rudy Giuliani gets this because he was tired of no one writing about it. He looked at it and said, this is horrific and bad for the country. So Rudy showed up. But evidently, they're looking at Rudy's – they're they're following Rudy. They wiretapped Rudy so they knew exactly what Rudy was up to. Rudy talks to Miranda Devine, people like you at the New York Post. And then they start – 
Uh, they know exactly when publishing day is. Prior to that, we have an Aspen Institute war games out. It seems to be uh, a dry run of with the Washington Post, New York Times, and other outlets saying in case something is dropped in October that looks exactly like this at the Aspen Institute – They go over this and they say, we just want to game plan this out, what you do and how you do it and what to look for. They knew exactly what was coming and who was doing it. Right. The key thing everyone's got to remember is the FBI had the full hard drive in 2019 because, as you just said, it was subpoenaed. They got it from the computer repairman, John Paul MacIsaac. Forget Rudy for a minute. They were spying on his iCloud because of an unrelated investigation. But in 2019, they had the hard drive. So they knew everything that was on it, assuming they looked at it, and they knew it was real. So then in 2020 – Unless we have the worst FBI ever. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you can never – government, you never know. Maybe they just put it in a draw and didn't look at it. But I have a hard time believing We don't. That they, they're good. they then spend all of 2020 behind the scenes putting out this narrative about, oh, there's going to be a Hunter Biden hack and leak operation. And be on guard for that and because they, they knew what they had possession of and they, and they knew it was, it was potentially going around. So – but they knew it wasn't a hack and leak. They knew Hunter dropped it off and, and, and the computer repairman gave it. So it was a false narrative they deliberately put out. So, John, I would be uncomfortable. John Levine here at the New York Post has been following the Twitter story and the, the laptop story and everything else. Uh, with the New York Post, since they were suspended, they've been a target and they've been motivated to get to the bottom of this. I would say this. I'd be disturbed about the FBI if they were out there deciding that, well, that Trump story is not true and this, and this Biden story is not true. And they're just pulling it down, right? I'd be like, what is the FBI doing pulling this down if I could not disseminate if it was right or left? But there's not one fake Trump story, alleged fake Trump story that they pulled down and found disturbing. Not one right. person. And you at the FBI, are you telling me most law enforcement, for the most part, were conservative? They tend to most military for a period of time were conservative. There weren't there entities within the FBI saying, wait a second, that's not the way we do it. That's not the way I was trained. By the way, that's not what I believe. But that didn't happen. Listen to Devin Nunes when he talks about the genesis of all this. Cut six. We were in a brawl with the Department of Justice and the FBI because we caught them spying on the Trump campaign and other Republican operatives in 2016 that continued on to 2017. At this time, we had confronted high-level folks at the highest level of the Department of Justice and the FBI saying that, look, we think you guys might have a problem here, too. Maybe you should recuse yourself. Maybe you shouldn't be involved. You would have thought they would have got to the bottom of it. But instead, what they did is they did this cute little way of reverse targeting me by going after my staff to figure out how did we know this information? What were we going to do with this information? And this was all just months before we made this all public that the FBI used the Clinton and DNC dirt to spy on Trump and the Trump campaign. So this has made sense to the first person this whole thing made sense to was Devin Nunes. I think, you know, you mentioned how the FBI, you know, these rank and file, they're conservative, they're law enforcement. I think that is how it might have once been. And I think there was a time during like maybe when J. Edgar Hoover was in charge. That far? G. Gordon Liddy was there. I'll tell you a consistent thing I notice because I use LinkedIn for a lot of to see who worked where. And you can see all the FBI agents going to Twitter. They all have their pronouns. In their LinkedIn accounts. Are you kidding? Yeah. These are All adults. these FBI agents have their pronouns. So I, I think it's a new FBI. And I'm actually starting to question the whole narrative of, well, it's just the leaders that are the problem. The rank and file are OK. Because I'm seeing a lot of rank and file FBI and well, senior but not leaders. And, and, and they, they appear to be bought into 
it, that it's a very different FBI than the one we were kind of raised to believe was the one we had. So a couple of things. A lot of people you know, have brought up, and I'll, I'll play some of this for you because I told you, Matt Taibbi sat down with Russell Brand because he hasn't said much to anybody. Plus, does Matt Taibbi profile as a conservative writer? I would put him in like the Glenn Greenwald category of a sort of Left but a, an OG liberal. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, and would you say Michael Schellenberger has a has a reputation of that? He's kind of newer on the scene. I think he's still a bit more undefined. Barry Weiss. I mean, Barry Weiss is definitely a center left. She she is she is someone who's firmly on the center left in this country. The Bill Maher left in this country. Understood. Okay, so Matt Taibbi seems a little flabbergasted, as does Mike Schellenberger. I'm going to talk to him in 15 minutes. That. Your people don't see this as a story, and here's here's what he said. Uh, here's what he here's what he said to Russell Brand. Cut ten. Do you think we're at a point, Matt, where all news is propaganda, or at least the majority of mainstream news is propaganda? I, I think we're pretty close to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know for a fact that there are certain stories out there that would not have a home in traditional corporate media, and that that is new. Once upon a time, a news organization was most interested in whether or not they had a big story. They didn't think about other considerations. Very rarely you would see something like the New York Times reaching out to the CIA or having conversations with them about whether or not they should print something. But now I think that's routine across the entire business. Maybe not the contact, but there's a presumption that we only print things that we think are going to like help whatever the cause is. You combine that with the, with the social media censorship and manipulation, which is just so sophisticated. And that backs up the narrative even further. So maybe you want the big story. No, you want the right story. It's depressing, you know, because I, you know, news organizations can have their bent. Some are more liberal, some yeah. are conservatives. But I really am a personally a very big believer that if you've got a big story, like a big story, it doesn't matter if your outlet is liberal or conservative. Like the story trumps the, the persuasion. I mean, New York Times with Bill Clinton. Right, right. right? They, they were the ones who broke the Lewinsky mess. Just the New York for, Times did a lot of great work on the Hillary 2016 campaign. They broke the, um, the, the, the Uranium emails. One scandal, yeah, yeah. the emails, a lot of different things. And liberals, they took a lot of heat from liberals after Trump won and said, you're the reason Hillary lost. And they came with a lot of reasons for why Hillary lost. But I think a big change happened after Trump won. And I think a lot of people in the industry started to reevaluate, you know, what the purpose of journalism was, you know, capital J journalism. And I think for a lot of people, it shifted from just break good stories, tell people what's happening to we need to sort of support the right side and protect democracy. And a lot of these high minded ideas that, again, get away from what the traditional view of what we're doing here should be. So Michael Schellenberg did some conclusions along with his reporting. He says, in the end, the FBI influence campaign aimed at executives at news media, Twitter, and other social media companies worked. They censored and discredited the Hunter Biden laptop story. That was December of 2020. Um, and his colleague even sent a note of thanks to the FBI for its work. Unbelievable. So Ted Lieu decides he read enough and says this. This is the California Democrat. He tweets out, I read this breathless Twitter file supplemental. From uh, Matt Taibbi, so you don't have to. So you don't have to. Here's the summary: <laughs> Twitter disagreed with the FBI. So Taibbi came right back and said, "It is very odd that people cough Ted Lieu think the FBI DHS relationship with Twitter and other platforms is a partisan story. It's taken place and grown under both Republican and Democratic administrations. This concerns everyone." 
He's, he's like, are you, right. are you kidding? I mean, the brass tax series, it is a partisan story only because for now, it's only one side. It's only one side that's been, been censored. And you're actually starting to see with Elon Musk when a, a tiny little bit of, of the shoe of being on the other foot is offered to liberals, how they're freaking out, talking about it. We need free speech and, uh, you know, we need a, some kind of constitutional amendment to protect free speech here. And it's very, very funny. In the last minute, uh, Musk kind of got him, got a little out off track over the weekend. Then he said a vote should I stay yeah. the CEO. What do you think is going to happen there? I think he got a, he's been a lot off track, to be frank, uh, lately. But – Look, I feel like he's kind of winging it. He bought it. It, it. He didn't want to buy it. He was forced into buying it, and he's kind of winging it. He, he's you know big picture, I believe, in free speech, but he's being confronted by kind of the nuts and bolts of what that means. Does that mean we can talk about where your plane is? Does you know does and and you have a lot of people who are reporting critical information about right. him. I think he's in a bit over his skis, and he's it, he should probably stick to Mars and sending people continue you know, like to own cars. it, put a CEO in charge, yeah. and weigh in when you have to. John Levine will continue to read your stuff because this stuff is coming down at a pretty dizzying rate. We need someone to disseminate. Thanks, John. Thank you. New York Post. Back in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. We turned into tribal, angry, vengeful people. And I I don't think that's something that is sustainable for the earth, that we start demonizing people that don't agree with our particular health policies and turn them into monsters, turn them into uh, pariahs, um, say that they don't deserve a hospital bed. Uh, I think about, you know, people that have made bad mistakes in their lives where they take too many drugs and they overdose. And that's totally their choice. That's totally their responsibility. Yet we take care of them. Yet we bring them to the hospital. Yet we save their lives because we're compassionate. Because we, we want to make sure that people live. And this turned. It turned into you should die because you have not complied. That's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I, I guess that's Tim Robbins, the actor who was married to Susan Sarandon for years. Yes, who's you know generally wildly liberal. And he, he was on with Russell Brand. It's the Russell Brand kind of day. But he it's a fascinating interview overall, but talks about how he sort of changed his opinion on COVID and the information he got. And that was Jimmy Kimmel coming out and saying they should die. And yeah. J- Howard Stern saying just let them rot. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, that's the heart of Hollywood these days. Michael Schellenberger, no better guest to talk to right now. He's coming up next. And uh, he's going to be talking about what he discovered, how Elon Musk got in touch with him, and what he discovered. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. Brian Kilmeade Show. Appreciate you being here. Let's welcome in Michael Schellenberger. Ben, he's been busy. Spent the last few weeks going through uh, communications with the old Twitter and what was happening between the FBI or what was happening between the executives, the FBI of Twitter, and what could only you could only imagine what was happening at other outlets. Michael, when did you realize that, that Elon Musk wanted to talk to you? Hey, Brian, it's good to be with you. I, I was invited in through uh, my friend Barry Weiss. Um, I've actually been fairly critical of Elon in the past, 
So um, I was a little surprised that I even got invited at all, but um, glad to be in there. And yeah, I mean, the only restriction we had was that he said he wanted us to publish it on Twitter before we published it anywhere else, which we were happy to do. And and basically, you know, we're allowed to look at, you know, a huge amount of files and emails. That's why I've been I've been actually pretty quiet over the last couple of weeks, just really trying to dig in and understand what was going on. Yeah, I think we tried to book you on the Saturday show, and they said, no, he's not available. I had no idea you were working on the biggest story in the country, at least I think it is. So how did you – you got the seventh release. Uh, what did they tell you you should focus – what did they give you? They give you date, parameters, anything? No, I mean, I, you know, we were pretty much, you know, I mean, I was trying to work with my two friends and colleagues, uh, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss. There's now other reporters are looking at it. So we had, you know, free reign to look at what we want to look at. I mean, I, um, Matt wrote an initial first thread on how Twitter dealt with the, its censorship and discrediting of a wholly accurate New York Post article about Hunter Biden's laptop. I discovered much more on it um, over a couple of weeks. You know, Matt didn't have as much time, and I just found a lot more about going on. And I also was then looking at, you know, what was what else was going on around this Hunter Biden laptop. And what I quickly put together is a pattern where it appears that FBI agents, um, along with former FBI agents within the company, were engaged in a disinformation campaign aimed at top. Twitter and Facebook executives, as well as at top news organization executives, to basically prepare them, prime them, get them set up to dismiss Hunter Biden information when it would be released. They were making, they were in, in, grossly exaggerating any potential Russian disinformation as a way to promote their own disinformation so that when the Hunter Biden laptop was released, not only would it be censored, I think more importantly, it would be discredited in the minds of you know, left of center Americans or moderate Americans who basically just viewed the whole episode as suspicious and ended up dismissing the contents of the laptop. So, Michael, are you saying that when uh, when that uh, when Johnny Mac Isaac gives the gives the FBI this laptop, they had nine to 10 months to get ready with a plan because they knew exactly how dangerous it was. For if, yeah, I mean, they, is, if they're worried about Biden, is that what you were concluding? Yeah, I mean, I think most I, I think every American should needs to understand that this computer store owner in Delaware named Mac Isaac in December of 2019 gave the Hunter Biden laptop to the FBI. The FBI gave him a receipt in the form of a subpoena in order to take possession of the computer. He also has Hunter Biden's signature on a receipt dropping off the laptop, um, they then sat on the laptop and did nothing with it, including also not giving it to a grand jury investigation. And they spent then, – then you had all of 2020 going on, and the FBI is warning that there could be a Russian hack and leak operation that would involve Hunter Biden's laptop. It's also important to remember that they had Rudy Giuliani under surveillance during this period. So – if the FBI was doing its job, they almost certainly knew that Giuliani had gotten this laptop from this Delaware computer store owner, that Giuliani had then given the laptop to the New York Post. And meanwhile, FBI um, agents, as well as former FBI officials inside and outside of Twitter are saying, oh, gosh, watch out for some Russian 
you know, fake news disinformation campaign around Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, it's quite appalling and requires a very, I think, serious congressional investigation and maybe a special prosecutor. Because if what's going on looks like what's going on, and this is the this is the politicization of the FBI, that's dangerous. That needs to be rooted out, and you need reform of this agency. Absolutely, and there's not a chance in the world that the same thing was going on at Facebook and other massive media companies, wouldn't you think? Well, we know it was because um, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, went on Joe Rogan this summer in August and said it. And when, as soon as uh, Joe uh, Joe Rogan asked. Mark Zuckerberg about it. Zuckerberg goes, oh, well, you know, he goes, the FBI came to us and they said, watch out for this, you know, uh, this leak operation in reference to the Hunter Biden laptop. You know, then meanwhile, the senior executive at Twitter said that they had specifically warned of a hack and leak operation around a Hunter Biden laptop. So, yeah, in fact, we know, in fact, that they were briefing, the FBI was briefing all Mm -hmm. of the social media companies in, in the same way that we saw news executives being sort of prepared as well by the Aspen Institute in a really bizarre Yeah, episode. tell tell us about that. Tell us about this tabletop exercise of the Aspen Institute. Who did you find out was invited? What took place? Well, this is really weird. I mean, it shows up. Um, we see that the senior executive at Twitter, this person named Yoel Roth, who, you know, I think we were very critical of him at the early Twitter files, but we started to see him really resisting a lot of FBI um, advances as well. And I wanted to describe some of those, but he gets this invitation and attends a so-called tabletop exercise. That's just a way of describing a kind of a scenario planning workshop to in Aspen in September, months before the release of the laptop to kind of plan out how the media should basically censor themselves, how they should basically improperly cover revelations around Hunter Biden's laptop should it emerge. I mean, it's the craziest thing. And it's attended, first of all, it's hosted by the head of the Aspen Digital Strategy Group, a woman named Vivian Schiller, who was the, you know, who basically ran, was the senior executive CEO of NPR, senior executive at New York Times, senior executive at Twitter. She's running this exercise. The people attending are the senior national security correspondents for the New York Times, for the Washington Post, for Twitter, for Facebook. I mean, it it really comes across like they were trying to brainwash yeah. people in advance of the release of the Hunter Biden laptop. And and the thing that was is pretty amazing. So they know when it comes across, they go, there it is. And they're such very smart yeah. people. Whatever you think about these guys, they're usually very smart people. Zuckerberg, the same one, if you might not agree with him, really intelligent guy. You, you think they'd be like, wait a second. This is exactly what they were briefing us on. How did they know? I mean, I would be, I would be suspicious, it's, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I think, first of all, you know, um, it's hard to see these patterns when you're in them. And especially when you're the object of them, when they're being aimed at you. Um, it's only clear to me by having a chance to kind of look at the documents from inside Twitter and then outside. Um, I think the other thing is that, you know, we're, tra- we're trained to think the FBI are the good guys. I know. I mean, you don't want to think that the FBI, I mean, it's a very, it's actually quite scary. And I found myself being, feeling really creeped out by reading this stuff because it starts to feel like, yeah, it feels like, you know, it's like the East German Stasi or something, you know, sort of 
engaged in illicit activities against the people of the United States, against the people they're supposed to protect, you don't normally go and have those suspicions. And you got to remember that, like, most of the time, most of the activity is stuff that we would all support. I mean, trying to get child exploitation and human trafficking off of social media. I mean, these are all things that everybody agrees on. It's just when they go into the stuff around hyping, you know, Russian influence, which was like vanishingly little. I mean, there's hardly any of it. Twitter kept telling them they weren't finding any of it. And then this, and then them, but them continuing to demand that, you know, and insist there's this big plot that they were uncovering. It's a chilling episode in American history. And I really hope that Congress um, gets a grip on it and that there's some special investigation of right. it because this has got to absolutely been, be rooted out. Of I, I don't know what tranche I saw it in, but is Burisma also a theme where they were trying to get ahead of the Burisma scandal where, where we know timeline-wise there was pushback from the Biden campaign, but we know that that Hunter introduced an executive to Vice President Biden and they, they, he said, well, he's being investigated by a prosecutor. Biden's in country, demands the firing of a prosecutor, says it's unrelated. But some of these Burisma stories, it seems like the it seems like they were trying to get ahead of that, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that was they were definitely pre-bunking, you know, preemptively debunking uh, that material at the Aspen Institute in the in the communications to Facebook and, and Twitter executives. I mean, look, the, you know, the Biden family has earned tens of millions of dollars in revenues for basically doing nothing other than providing access to Joe Biden. The most disturbing of all of these business dealings are with the Chinese government. I mean, there's four senior Chinese intelligence officials who were paying Hunter Biden. That's um, That's why this is being investigated. It's not like you know, they were, you know, it's not like Hunter Biden was making shoes in China and selling them in the United States. This is, Hunter Biden ha- was offering nothing to the Chinese government, nothing to Chinese intelligence influence. other than access to his father. And that's, that's what's so disturbing about it. So, Michael, so somebody who's very familiar with the left and right, are you surprised that there's radio silence from the other outlets, except for when Donald Trump saw this and tweeted, put, put something on Truth Social about the Constitution, that was basically it is what they found out. Are you surprised? I, 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 can, I admit I continue to be surprised I'm stunned. and disappointed. What's that? I'm stunned. Um, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's just everything has obviously gotten super polarized. and But, you know, you kind of go I, – I actually, the part of me that's still optimistic is that um, – you know, the FBI, I think I think Democrats, when you remind Democrats, in my experience, that, um, you know, a politicized FBI, a biased FBI uh, can be turned against Democrats and has been in the past. It could turn against liberals and leftists as much as it can be against conservatives yeah. and Republicans and rightists. You, that's not a good road to go down as a country. And so I do think that you know, look, there's going to be congressional investigations on this next year. I think the more information is going to come to light. I do think that, you know, there's always everybody is always initially reluctant to admit that their opponents are right about something. I think that we're in that phase now. I am optimistic that things are going to change because I just think the the, the possibility that the FBI is basically been corrupted by political ideology and either 
rogue agents or some sort of uh, organized effort um, is very is a very but, scary idea. Yeah, you have this guy Elvis Chan who's everywhere. You got the guy Tim T. Bolt who's everywhere. You also have you said is up to not maybe not you specifically. So I don't want to put something on that wasn't in your tranche. But there's about 80 uh, FBI agents working with Silicon Valley social media conglomerates in order to continue to monitor so-called international uh, international communications trying to influence our election. And guess what they found out? There's at least a dozen FBI agents that go over to Twitter to for the next phase of their career, which set up a, sexual, a separate Slack communication between them, even had a nickname for their group. I mean, it's funny, right? Like, I almost didn't include it because it didn't seem like a super relevant detail. But I mean, yeah, when the former general counsel for FBI, Jim Baker, arrives at Twitter, you know, he gets this email saying, oh, hey, welcome. You're the the latest, you know, bureau alumni to come here. They have their own private Slack internal messaging channel. They have their own little crib sheet explaining, you know, the same processes that were at FBI that are now in place at Twitter and the different names they have for them. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, some of that you kind of go, well, you know, there would be some understandable sharing or some, you know, revolving door. But it is quite shocking how many people it is. And it's particularly shocking when you see their eagerness to go after so-called Russian influence when Twitter executives themselves were finding so little of it. I want you to hear what Matt Taibbi told Russell Brand. Uh, He was the first reporter to get some of this cut eight. I don't know what journalists wouldn't be totally turned on by the opportunity to look through these kinds of documents. For years, everybody who's used Twitter has had these questions like, am I, do they do shadow banning? Am I, or is my follower account being suppressed? Do they actually have that? What can they look at when they look at my account? And so when, when you see something like a screenshot of an account that has a big thing on it that says trends blacklist, it's incredible. I mean, what, what journalist wouldn't be interested in that? I, I, I find that just absolutely amazing. And this idea that, oh, because, you know, a source is whatever, we can't be interested in the documents. That's never the case. For instance, WikiLeaks, like you're, you're talking about stuff that was stolen. We're not supposed to care about that. We're supposed to care about what's true. And it's our job to figure out whether these documents are real or not and whether and understand what's happening in it. But the provenance of it isn't supposed to be really that much of a factor. Right. I mean, I know you're speaking to the he's speaking to the choir when he's speaking to you, but it's just not most of the media. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's embarrassing for them. I mean, it's trouble for them long term because they're going to lose. They're going to they, they and they are. They're just not going to be trusted, you know, by their audience. I mean, I'm not, um, you know, I mean, I don't know how much you or your listeners know, but I'm not. I'm, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a conservative. I never voted for Trump, um, and I consider myself liberal in a lot of different ways. And this is very disturbing pattern of behavior here by the FBI. I don't think your average Democrat or liberal or centrist or independent could look at what we're looking at gotcha. and think it's okay. And I think mm-hmm. that when people do look at it, they're going to go, this is grossly inappropriate. This is this so is as inappropriate as what J. Edgar Hoover was doing in the 1950s and 60s. Michael, you and did, we you, didn't like it then. We don't like it now. I, I look forward to, to more of your releases. Michael, you did a great job. It's complicated, and you broke it down. Michael Schellenberger, thanks so much. Radio 
that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. More to know. Sponsored by Unplugged. Reclaim your privacy from big tech snooping with Unplugged. Visit Unplugged.com. Here we go, guys. Uh, Let's talk World Cup. Uh, Lionel Messi's Instagram post after the World Cup wins social media making history. The whole world watched. The whole world is in awe. Best player in the game. Scores the win, one of the winning goals. Put it into overtime. They are champions of the world. The only thing missing was a World Cup title. Uh, evidently, he put out there uh, a tweet that said, Champions of the world. Messi wrote in Spanish, So many times I dreamed it and so much I wanted it. I still don't. And in that, in that I still don't fall. I can't believe it. Thank you so much to my family, to all those who support me, and to all those who believe in us. We prove once again the Argentinians uh, when we fight together, united, we're able to achieve what we aim. The merit is of this group, which is more about individuals, is the strength of all fighting for the same dream, uh, was all the one of all Argentinians. We did it. Let's go, Argentina. Damn, we're seeing each other. Ever, uh, we're seeing each other very soon. So translated into English. 58.5 million likes. And that, at the time that that story was printed, so now it actually is up to over six, uh, 63 million. People the, like him. It's the most liked post ever in Instagram so history. I, this so point. I wrote Mayor Suarez, and I says, is it still on track for him to come to Inter-Miami? And he says, yes, we believe he is. Wow. Can you imagine that? He, could, he could fill up uh, he could fill up a football stadium, let alone a 25,000-seat soccer stadium and more. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.